Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray. Father, how fruitless an exercise this would be if you don't come by your Spirit to help us. We come now before your Word. How will we understand it if you don't remove our blindness? How will we grow if you don't help us by your grace? Please come and seal your Word upon our hearts. Please bring good for your people and those who are yet not your people. Through the ministry of the word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we continue in our series this morning through the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be this morning in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. But I'd like us to read in context, we'll begin in verse 7 and we'll read through verse 9, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. William Shakespeare Sonnet 116, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love, which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark, whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken, loves not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ nor man ever loved. This kind of love of which Shakespeare writes is the kind of love which every individual man, woman, and child longs to experience. Moreover, it is the kind of love we were meant and designed to experience. Further, when we are in touch with the most noble parts of ourselves, it is the kind of love we long to give to others and for which we ourselves hope to be known. There is something universally attractive and compelling and virtuous about this kind of love, which is perhaps why Shakespeare's words in this sonnet written so many years ago have echoed throughout the centuries and continue to be quoted and cherished to this day. But this kind of love, the kind of love that endures, the kind of love that is undaunted in the face of trials and failure, the kind of love that perseveres despite the sins and deficiencies of love's object, the kind of love that is given unconditionally, the kind of love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This kind of love has a more ancient source. This kind of love is bound up in the heart of God and has been revealed in His Word. It is the love of God 
which He has shown towards sinners in the person of His own dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And more than that, it is the love that He imparts to all those who are His children that they too might love one another with the same love with which He has loved us. It is the kind of love that is to be fundamental and basic to the life of the Christian community. This is how we are meant to love one another in the church. This love which does not admit impediments, which alters not when it alteration finds, which looks on tempests and is not shaken, this love is the theme of our passage this morning. Peter raises the issue of love, specifically loving one another within the community of faith no less than five times in this short book of 1 Peter, actually once in every chapter. You can't read a chapter in 1 Peter without being reminded of the priority of loving one another in the church, in the context of a local church like ours. 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. 1 Peter 2.17, love the brethren. 1 Peter 3.8, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Our passage in 1 Peter 4 Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And 1 Peter 5.14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Simply put, the object of Christian love, love within the family of God, among the people of God, is one of the most important subjects, not only in the epistle of 1 Peter, but in all the Bible, and is this subject as presented to us in 1 Peter 4, 8 through 9, that I wish for us to consider today. I have two headings, and the first is this. Consider with me the priority of love. The priority of love. Please look again at our passage beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I mentioned last week that the phrase, the end of all things is at hand, controls this entire passage through verse 11. Because the end of all things is at hand, meaning because we live now in the final stage of history and history is moving toward the goal, which is the consummation, the return of Christ, because the end of all things is at hand, we are, as the Lord's people, in light of this reality, to adopt certain attitudes and to cultivate certain virtues and to engage in certain activities, living in light of the end. And last week we saw in verse 7 that Peter begins with a call to self-control and sober-mindedness leading us to prayer, to engage in the work and purpose of prayer. But now Peter takes up this issue of love and he accentuates and enhances the priority of love even more with the phrase, above all. I think it wouldn't be wrong to understand Peter to be saying, yes, in light of the end, prioritize self-control and sober-mindedness, and prioritize prayer. But even more important than those things is the matter of loving one another. Brothers and sisters, the end is near. You need to be self-controlled and sober-minded for prayers, and above all else, you need to give yourself to loving one another earnestly. 
He says to these Christians living as exiles in a hostile world that is not their home, who are living at the end of all things, that above all else, this is to be your highest priority. You must continue loving one another earnestly. In light of what we've seen so far and the way Peter's building up this exhortation, this call to love one another in the family of God and the community of faith, I don't think Peter could possibly give love any higher priority for the Christian. This concern rises to the highest level of importance in Peter's thinking. More than prayer, more than evangelism, more than proper church order. Maybe you've noticed ecclesiology is almost non-existent in the book of 1 Peter. He never even uses the word church in the entire letter. More important than all these things, this is the matter of greatest priority that you love one another. Now, I'm obviously not diminishing those other things. We're to give ourselves to those things also and to think carefully about those things also. All I'm endeavoring to do is to interpret Peter's words accurately and to take him at his word. He is the one who says, above all. This is the matter of priority. This is the matter of preeminent importance. He is making a value judgment. He says this surpasses all other concerns in terms of importance and priority. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you regard as important in terms of your involvement in the life of this particular church. I don't know how you assess the most important contributions you can make to our church life here, but if love for the brethren, love for your brothers and sisters sitting to the right of you and the left of you and in front of you and behind you, if love for your brothers and sisters in Christ is not at the top of your list, then your priorities are not rightly ordered according to Peter and according to the rest of the New Testament. I want you to appreciate, this is a burden Peter has, but it is not unique to Peter. This is a burden we see repeated again and again throughout the New Testament. And I want us to appreciate just how prominent this teaching is in the New Testament, that love is the highest of our priorities in the family of God. Almost nothing in the Bible rises to this level of importance. So I just want to highlight a handful of very well-known and prominent texts from other passages in the Bible to illustrate how significant the priority of love is to the Lord Jesus Christ and for the church. And I want to mention these texts, frankly, because I don't think enough Christians appreciate just how important this is in the Bible, just how prominent, even preeminent, this theme of love for our brothers and sisters is in the Scriptures. Love that perseveres, love that is intelligent, love that overlooks offenses. I'm just going to read a few verses, and then I'm going to ask you in a moment to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, so maybe you could get your thumb there. But we'll start with Jesus. During His early ministry, His earthly ministry, excuse me, Jesus taught that the law itself, the Torah, the law, is summarized in the commandment to love. This is included in almost every gospel. I'm reading from Matthew 22, verse 36. We read there, a man comes to Jesus and asks, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. His argument is that the law of love 
here expressed in terms of love for God and love for neighbor actually summarizes the demands of the law. law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. If you love perfectly, you keep the law perfectly. Now, it's important we understand that this statement from Jesus doesn't represent a reduction or abrogation of the law. It is a summary of the law. If you love your brothers and sisters and your neighbors as you ought, you will keep the law with respect to them. You won't commit adultery with them. You won't have hatred in your heart against them. You won't covet what they have. Love is the fulfillment of the law, indeed the summary of the law. Further, Jesus in His earthly ministry didn't just teach about love. He modeled love for His disciples and then commanded them to follow His example. So, John chapter 13, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, the beginning of the upper room discourse, right before Jesus stoops down to wash the feet of His disciples, John says this about Him, now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. That's how Jesus loves us. Having loved His own, His flock, His people, He loved them to the end. And then He washes their feet, and then that chapter concludes with this new commandment that Jesus gives, John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I preached on this passage probably about two years ago. I don't expect anybody remembers that sermon. But when I preached that message, we asked the question, in what sense is this a new commandment from Jesus? Because you probably know the Old Covenant law required love. The motive of obedience to Old Covenant law was meant to be love also. So, it's not new to say that we're to love one another, right? So, in what sense is this a new commandment? And it's new, I argued in that sermon, and still believe in two ways it's a new commandment. Number one, it's new in terms of the standard, the standard for love. It just couldn't be said in Leviticus that we're to love one another as Jesus Christ has loved us and modeled love for us. But now Jesus has come, and He's lived a life of love before His disciples and given His teaching on love and lived faithfully in the life of love. And now He says, you're to follow this example that I have laid for you. The standard has been given, a new standard. But the second way this is rendered a new commandment, is that it's given a new priority. This is Jesus' church, His disciples, His ecclesia, His little band that He has called out from the world. His church is going to get started and to go forward, and He says, this command that you love one another is to take a place of special priority among My people. It will be the distinctive mark of the people of God. It will be like the seal that you are my people. By this, the world is going to know those are Jesus' people. Those are people who follow Jesus Christ. Look at their love. That's how you can tell that they are disciples of the Lord Jesus. Now, turn please to 1 Corinthians 13 as we look to the statements that the apostles themselves have made, the Apostle Paul in particular. 1 Corinthians 13, often read out at weddings, that's not inappropriate, but when Paul wrote these words, I don't think he was thinking at all about love in marriage, though this passage certainly would apply to marriage. He was talking about love within the Christian church, like the love we have for one another in the family of God. I don't think people have reckoned 
with the significance of this passage as they ought. The statements that Paul makes here are so categoric, so absolute, so sweeping. We need to allow them to have their full effect in our lives and in our hearts. So, 1 Corinthians 13, look at verse 1. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now think of what Paul is saying. If I have all prophetic powers, if I could penetrate into the deepest mysteries of the Bible and of the counsel of God, but I lack love, I have nothing. I am nothing. He said, you could preach like D. Martin Lloyd-Jones or Charles Spurgeon, but if D. Martin Lloyd-Jones and Charles Spurgeon lacked love, they are nothing. What do those prophetic powers amount to? Verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Isn't that extraordinary? You could be a martyr for Jesus, but if you lack love, you're nothing. You know, Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna in, I think, the second century A.D., I think he was discipled by the Apostle John. He was fed to the lions in the Colosseum, and he was brought out there, and before the gathered assembly, he was asked to renounce his belief in Jesus Christ. And he said, 86 years have I followed him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I renounce my Lord and my Savior? And he was martyred. Paul is saying if he lacked love, it's just nothing. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. What is Paul saying? He's making a value judgment. He's saying love is greater than faith. Love is greater than hope. He's not saying that love replaces faith or replaces hope. No, these three abide. We need all three. You can't be saved without faith. You're not going to persevere without faith. Christian hope. But when he makes an assessment as to which of these virtues and graces is the greatest, he says that love is the greatest of these. Again, my emphasis is on the priority of love, the preeminence of love. One more passage. I'll read Colossians 3, 12 through 14. There Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
Put on kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has to complain against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What is Paul saying? Love is greater than compassion. It's greater than kindness. It's greater than humility. It's greater than meekness and patience. For Paul says, above all these, you Christians put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, back in our passage, 1 Peter 4, here Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. This is the priority. This gets the preeminence among the people of God, love for one another in the Christian family. So I ask again, when you think of your involvement in the life of this particular local church, what is the most important thing you bring to the table? What is the matter of greatest priority? What is the matter of greatest significance? Jesus and Paul and Peter and the other New Testament writers would say, above all, would you love one another? Now consider with me secondly, that was the priority of love. Consider with me secondly, the course love takes. The course love takes. Again, in verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The call to love is a call to love one another as the text reads, earnestly. This word makes it clear that the love envisioned here requires the engagement of our whole being. There are Christians who have a view of love that is so narrow, essentially reduces love to action. Love is doing. Love is sacrificing. That's the essence of love. It's an impossibly reductionistic view of love. But then there are others who will reduce love uh, basically to essentially warm feelings about another person. Like that's the essence of love. Both views are impossibly reductionistic and don't come close within leagues of the Bible's picture of love. Love, according to the Bible, is three things. It is a commitment of the will, it is an affection of the heart, and it is a sacrifice of the life. A commitment of the will, an affection of the heart, a sacrifice of the life. And this is, in essence, what Peter is calling these Christians to when he says, love one another earnestly. Give your all in your love for your brothers and sisters. It will demand of you, yes, a commitment, a resolve of the will. I'm going to love this person. I'm going to stick it out with this person. I'm going to love them. I'm going to resolve mentally to do that. It will involve also an affection of the heart that I actually feel things for them, that I actually feel goodwill toward them, that I'm affectionate toward them. Love is not love without feeling. And love is, of course, also a sacrifice of the life, to give of myself, to lay down myself, to do things in love for the object of my love. But now I want to highlight two ways in which this kind of love comes to expression, two ways in which love acts. We'll spend most of our time on the first. We'll consider the second and then be done. Number one, we see in this passage, love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of 
sins. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly for, or sins, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, some think that when Peter says love covers a multitude of sins, he's referring to Christ's act of love in dying on the cross for us, which covers our sins or atones for our sins. That's certainly a true doctrine, uh, but it is a fantastic imposition on this passage that is alien to Peter's meaning altogether. He's not here referring to Christ's death on the cross for us. No, Peter is probably quoting from Proverbs 10, verse 12. There we read, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Hatred has one course, stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. It's clear from Peter's use of this text that Peter means to say that in the community of faith, the individual members can either work to stir up strife or they can work to maintain peace and unity and harmony. Hatred stirs up strife. Love covers all offenses, meaning love overlooks wrongdoing committed against us. And it's important you see that. Peter does not say that love covers relatively benign and innocuous acts um, committed in our presence, like neutral things. And he doesn't say that, 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 that when it's open to interpretation as to whether a sin happened or not, uh, we choose to believe the best. No, Peter is envisioning a situation in which you've been sinned against. Actual sin has taken place. You've been slandered, an unkind word has been said to you, careless deed has been committed against you, and he envisions Christian people covering it over in a blanket of love. Peter's language envisions actual sin. He is imagining in all realism that sin has taken place between one brother and another, one sister and another, and actual sin has been committed. Someone has said something unkind. They've spoken falsely about you. They have been careless and unloving in their treatment of you, but the love of the one sinned against for the one who sinned is so great that he overlooks, that he ignores, that he covers up the offense. The image of sweeping it under the rug is the idea. Peter's acknowledging that one of the functions of love is a commitment, a resolve to overlook the sins, faults, and offenses committed against us by our brothers and sisters in the church. If you gossip, if you stir up division, if you are factious, if you are quick to take offense, as the Proverbs say, that is a function of hatred for your brothers and sisters. But if you overlook offenses, if you are quick to forgive your brothers and sisters, if you refuse to be offended and commit yourself to ignoring and forgetting the unkind word or the careless deed done against you, that is a function of love. Now, this is not to say that there is never a time to confront sin and acknowledge offense. This is not to say that the church should never discipline someone who is in unrepentant sin. This is not to say that certain sins shouldn't have consequences in terms of relationships. That would represent an impossibly reductionistic view of Peter's words here. But it is to say that one of the functions of love is that it overlooks offenses, covers a multitude of sins, not just one, not just two, but a whole multitude. Or as our Lord says, not seven times, 
but 70 times 7. I don't think we appreciate just how radical the call to forgiveness is in the Bible. Again and again, we're told to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Jesus Christ from the cross looked upon those who had driven the nails into his hands. And what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A lesser-known passage, I think it's in 2 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul says, at my first defense, no one stood with me. In fact, all abandoned me. May it not be counted against them. Abandoned by his friends in his hour of need, Lord, I don't want you to look on the offense. I don't want this sin imputed against them. That's a Christian attitude toward the offenses of others against us. Love overlooks sins both small and great. One of the commentators says this, a person who is under the control of godly love acts when a private personal injury has been done to him as though nothing had occurred. In this way, by simply ignoring the unkind act or the insulting word, he brings the evil thing to an end. It dies and leaves no seed. This consideration gives dignity and worth inestimable to the feeble efforts of the most insignificant of us to make love the controlling principle of our daily lives. Listen to what D.A. Carson says here. Peter assumes realistically that various breaches will occur in the Christian assembly. Get a bunch of sinners together, tell them to live in covenant together, Tell them to gather together all the time. They're going to sin against each other. He assumes, realistically, there's going to be breaches that occur in the Christian assembly. He says, just as they occur in a family. But in a mature family, the love of each family member for the others covers over the breaches. So also in the church. We must face the fact that sins will be committed and be prepared to cover them over with love. Listen to this. For there is no way back to the innocence of Eden. Certainly not by probing each blemish and letting it all hang out, going over the same sins and failures again and again. There is no way back. There is only a way forward through the cross to forgiveness and forbearance. Christians must love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Mature Christians know their own hearts well enough to realize that they need such love and need to display it. Carson's saying, how will you move forward in a community full of sinners? All in this sinful mess together, all with sinful attitudes and sinful dispositions and all kinds of offenses we're going to commit against one another. How can you expect that community is going to forge a way forward? He says, you can't go back. You can't expect innocence among fallen men and women. You can't go back to Eden. There is only one way forward. We can only go forward through the cross to arrive at forgiveness and forbearance in our relationships with one another. This is how love acts. This is the course love takes. Love covers sin. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Friends, what pleases Christ, and frankly what keeps churches together, 
is the resolve of love. I'm not going to hold this against my brother and sister. I'm going to cover over their failings. I'm going to ignore offenses. I'm going to cover a multitude of sin. Love makes choices. Love has a will. Love chooses whether or not it will be offended. Remember, love is not only an affection of the heart. When evaluating your love for this body of believers here, you should not think only of your pleasant feelings about them. You should ask, am I committed? Am I resolved? Is there a commitment of the will to love these men and women? And love chooses not to be offended at the sins and failures of our brothers and sisters. Love says, I will cover this failing in love. I will cover over the failure of my brother or sister and not hold it against them. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. What does love do? Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. What would happen if we consistently applied 1 Peter 4, 8, 1 Corinthians 13, 7 in all of our interactions, in our families, and among the people of God. Brother, sister, someone sins against you. I'm not talking about something benign, some pedestrian comment that's made. Oh, what did she mean by that? I'm not really sure. I'm talking about like clear sin in broad daylight. Someone commits sin against you. You can choose in love not to be offended. You choose in that moment love or hate. Hatred, the Proverbs say, stirs up strife. I'm going to take the offense. I'm going to nurse bitterness in my heart. I'm going to allow tension and strife and hostility to grow. That's the course hatred takes. But love covers all offenses. That's the course of love. I think one of the ugliest traits in a Christian is an eagerness to be offended. Someone who is ruthless when sinned against. One who holds on to something against a brother or sister and refuses to let it go in love. One who allows sins committed against them by their fellow Christians to become the grounds for division and alienation and gossip and tension and strife. That is one of the most sub-Christian of traits. Some people just walk around looking to be offended. They're ready to be offended. Not just by sins, but by even otherwise innocuous things. The Bible teaches that those people are nothing. I don't care what else they do. They could prophesy. They could interpret mysteries. They could become a martyr. The Bible says if they lack love, they are nothing. And it would be legitimate to ask such a person, if you are so ruthless, in your dealings with others and their sins against you, how dwells the love of God in your heart? How can those who have experienced the love of God in Christ, who have experienced such lavish forgiveness, those who, when their sins abounded, experienced the grace of God in Christ, which abounded so much more, how could such be ruthless in holding offenses against a brother or sister? As the Lord has elsewhere said, those who have been forgiven much love much. 
Those who have experienced God's grace become gracious themselves. Wherever you have someone who holds a grudge, nurtures bitterness, cultivates unforgiveness, you have someone who doesn't understand the gospel very well at all. But wherever you have a Christian who is eager to overlook wrongdoing, whose desire is to cover sins in love, who leans always toward forgiveness and forbearance, mark my words, there is a man, there is a woman who has been transformed by the love of God. The gospel has sunk down into their hearts and taken deep root. They are eager to forgive just as God and Christ has forgiven them. There was a man at a previous church. He was an older single man, full of the Spirit of God. He was an exceptional Christian man and quite eclectic and unusual at the same time. And um, I had, in the morning service of this church we were a part of, said something insensitive. Imagine that. And um, said something insensitive to the brother, and I felt convicted about it. I thought I'd sinned against him. The evening service, his name was Joseph. I said, Joseph, can I talk to you after the service tonight? Caught him at the door. We sat down in the front, and I said, you know, I I said this this morning. I was so wrong to say that. I just, I sinned against you. And it was a rotten thing to say. I don't know why I said it. I don't feel that way towards you. I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me? And he said, Alex, it would be almost impossible for you to offend me. That's a Christian attitude. That's a Christian. He didn't take it. My sinful words didn't take it as some great injury. He wanted to put the best possible construction on what I said to him. What I said was wrong. But he was not eager to take offense. He wanted to believe the best, hope the best, and to cover my sins in love. That more Christian sisters thought that way in their dealings with each other. Oh, that more Christian men, Christian husbands, thought that way in their relationship with their wives, rather than keeping score and keeping a record of wrongs. No, rather, I will cover failings and sin under a blanket of love. How different the world would be if we could attain this standard of love. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says here. Love has no wish to see faults. Love covers. Love stands in the presence of a fault with a finger on her lip. Love covers all injuries by being silent about them and acting as if they had never been. She sitteth alone and she keepeth silence. Oh, that we had such a love that it would cover all and conceal all so far as it is right and just that it should be covered and concealed. Don't you feel convicted? Like, don't names come to your mind of people you want to love better? I've failed in love. I've been too eager to take offense. I've allowed tension and strife and animosity to enter the relationship. No, love, brothers and sisters, is eager to cover sin. I would encourage you, just commit, my brother, just commit, my sister. I'm not going to allow the sins of my brothers and sisters to loom so large in my mind that it holds me back from loving them. I'm going to have large eyes to my own faults, and I'm going to have to squint to see your faults. We're not that way, right? 
We all have 20-20 vision uh, for the faults of others, and we all need like a minus 30 prescription to see our own faults, right? The Bible says it should be the other way around. Self-knowledge would have us see our sins in full view, and love would have us cover the sins of our brothers and sisters such that we don't see them. Again, Spurgeon says, love is a quick eye to see the best qualities of others, and it is habitually a little blind to their failings. Her blind eye is to the fault, and her bright eye is for the excellence. Husbands, you want to honor your wives today on this Mother's Day? If you've got a blind eye and a bright eye, have a blind eye to her faults, a bright eye to her excellencies, and wives adopt the same posture toward your husband. Brothers and sisters in the church adopt the same posture toward one another. Wherever there is a successful Christian marriage, and wherever there is a church that stands for decades united, and that abounds in love, you can be sure that there has been this resolution of love that covers a multitude of sins. Friends, there's no way backwards. Can't go back to the innocence of Eden. There's only moving forward through the cross in our relationships with one another toward forgiveness and toward forbearance. We are all in this sinful mess together, and who of us could possibly survive? How could we ever make it as a church if we insist on holding every sin, every grievance, every offense against each other? Let us instead be a community shaped by the gospel, so cognizant so familiar with the grace of God in Jesus Christ that we dare not hold our sins against one another. We are eager to forgive, eager to dispense grace, leaning toward freely showing mercy and kindness and love to our brothers and sisters in the church. It is by an acquaintance with the love of God in Christ that we become 1 Peter 4, 8 people. May God make it so. There's a second course that love takes according to this passage. I'll just be very brief here. Love shows itself in covering sins, but also it shows itself, we read, through hospitality. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. See, hospitality in the church is a function of love. Love covers sins. Love receives brothers and sisters in hospitality. It's a function of love. It's a command of Scripture. This is one of the reasons why we have sought to cultivate and nurture within our church family a culture of hospitality. It is very hard to be alienated from people who have shared table fellowship with you. It's very hard to slander those who you have taken into your home and into your life and into your heart. If we show such hospitality to one another, it is one of the greatest habits, one of the greatest disciplines, one of the greatest virtues by which we can maintain unity and love within the body of Christ. And so I encourage you, in light of this passage, all of us here to be busy about the work of showing hospitality to one another and doing it without grumbling, doing it in cheerfulness. And I'll just encourage you, there's lots of different ways to show hospitality. I think the best way is having people in your home. That seems to be the most common way in the Scriptures. And so if you have a home, God has gifted you with resources at a kitchen, at an oven, you can make some food for somebody and have them over and get to know them and enter into their lives and enter into their hearts. Be about that work. God calls us to this in love for one another. It's the course hospitality takes. I recognize that not everybody can do this, though. 
Not everyone here has a home that's suitable to bring people back to, a living arrangement that they can use for hospitality. Not everybody has the resources whereby they can uh, put a meal out there for people and things like that. There's many ways to show hospitality. You see someone in the assembly this morning who's sort of on the outskirts, looks like they don't have a friend, looks a little bit lost in the crowd. Go up and introduce yourself. Talk to them. Love them. Share life with them. That's hospitable conduct. Take a brother, sister out to coffee. Say, hey, let's get together to pray together. I want to share my life with you. I want to help you. I want to serve you. Minister to them in some kind of way. That's all hospitable behavior. This is the course that love takes. The work of hospitality is enjoined on all of us, and it is to come to expression in our relationships with one another. It's one of the best ways to cultivate this kind of love, the kind of love this passage is talking about. It is cultivated in part through hospitality. But now I need to close. I have prayed that God would use this message to awaken in our hearts and ignite in our hearts a deeper love for one another, particularly love that is resolved through the grace that God supplies to overlook the sins and offenses of our brothers and sisters. And I have prayed that we would all be humbled and inspired by the vision of love laid out for us in this passage. Brothers and sisters, the end of all things is at hand. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I said this a couple of weeks ago. God has given this church a good start. A sister in Christ at the Sunday night prayer meeting encouraged us along those lines as well. God has given us a good start. This church came together in large measure because of a shared commitment to the gospel, a shared commitment to a certain body of doctrine, there was a substantial like-mindedness. And that's in part how this church was formed. But before we were willing to sign the paper, I mean literally sign the paper, we had a service on a Saturday evening, August 5th, 2017, where we signed a church covenant. Before we were willing to do that, we wanted to see and to discern that God was really establishing bonds of love between the members in the church. That truly we loved each other, we're committed to one another, we're affectionate toward one another, and that took a little bit of time. It's one of the reasons why we didn't start day one as Emmanuel Church and slap it on the sign and all of that. Okay, I'm just looking with pastoral eyes on this congregation and on our church membership. I don't think the challenge for us in terms of whether or not this church will be here 50 years from now if the Lord should tarry, I don't think, I could be wrong, I don't think the challenge for us in terms of making it together is going to come primarily in the form of doctrine. We have to hold fast to the truth, brothers and sisters, and God help us tenaciously, we will do so. I don't think that's where the greatest challenge is going to come. If Emmanuel Church is not going to be here 50 years from now, I think it's more likely that it will come in the form of a failure to love one another, to love one another according to the vision of this passage. Something about our love that once burned bright, we would allow to wane, and we would allow the sins and the offenses of our brothers and sisters to loom far too large in our minds.
and we'll allow tension and division to seep in and we'll divide from one another. Well, how will we avoid that outcome? We'll preach the gospel and we'll preach the grace of God and we'll preach the love of God in Christ and we'll be so overwhelmed by the grace of God toward us that we will, God helping us, become gracious and merciful in our relationships with one another. And we will think conscientiously. We will pray. We will study. How can we fulfill the vision of passages like this? It takes a sacrifice of the life, a commitment of the will. When you're down in the nursery after the service today, and then you're picking up your small child, and one of the nursery workers says, oh yeah, your child wasn't so crazy today, you don't have to get offended. Someone says something about you privately, and it comes back to you that that brother slandered you or said something that wasn't exactly right or loving. You don't have to get offended. I know it's wrong. I know it's sin. But you should think to yourself, no, I, I'm not going to take offense. I love this brother. I love this sister. And if there are ten interpretations I can make on this situation, nine of them bad, one of them good, love chooses the one that is good. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If we're going to make it, brothers and sisters, for the next hundred years or until Jesus comes back, it will not come without a sustained commitment fanned into flame by the Spirit of God to love one another. May God make us faithful in these things. I want to read one more quote to you and propose to you that this is how we will endure. You wonder, you, you think about the demands of 1 Peter 4, 8 and 9, and you say, you know what, I, I don't think I can do that. If someone says that about my kid, when I go downstairs, to, I'm leaving this church, I'm out. Or I'm not inviting her to the play date anymore. Well, I just will avoid that, brother. The church is getting a little bigger nowadays. I think I can kind of make my way around the room where we don't have to interact. I struggle to actually cover sins with a blanket of love. This is the anecdote, again, from Charles Spurgeon. He says, best of all, love sucks her life from the wounds of Christ. Love can bear believe, hope, and endure because Christ has borne, believed, and hoped, and endured for her. I learned to love through feeling a pierced hand laid on my shoulder and hearing in my ear a sorrowful voice, that self-same voice which cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I would see that vision and hear that voice, and then, what then? Why, I must love. I must love. I must love. Love makes us love. Love bought us and sought us and brought us to the Savior's feet, and it shall henceforth constrain us to deeds which else would be impossible. May the Lord of love look into your eyes with those eyes which once were red with weeping over human sin. May He touch your hands with those hands that were nailed to the cross and impress the blessed nail marks upon your feet, and then may He pierce your heart till it 
pour forth a life for love and flow out in streams of kind desires and generous deeds and holy sacrifices for God and for His people. God, grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, who of us could attain to this standard of love if left to ourselves and left in our sin? We can only love like this through an acquaintance with Your love for us. We need to see ever before us this vision of our Savior when the sinful word is said against us, the sinful act is committed against us. Bring to our minds a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ standing with us, laying His nail-pierced hand on our shoulders, those nails that were pierced for our sins. And may we so overwhelmed by His love for us, and so inspired and moved by His call that we love one another as He has loved us, may it move us to cover the failings and offenses of our brothers and sisters in love. Give us all large eyes to our own failings, small eyes, blind eyes to the failings of others. Father, our burden, we are not entitled, oh, you don't owe this to us. But if it is to be true that Jesus is yet to come back, for 100 years, 500 years, we don't know the day or the hour. We really want this church to be here. We want it to stand. We want it to endure. So please work within us this grace of love that overlooks offenses. We know we won't make it unless we are resolved, unless through an affection of the heart, a commitment of the will, a sacrifice of the life, we generate and sustain love toward one another. Please help us in this. Work this grace within us. And we do pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.